Let's Talk Gainesville is a podcast produced by the Bob Graham Center Student Fellows. Views expressed do not necessarily mirror the stances of the Bob Graham Center. It's common knowledge that the United States and its cities are often far behind the curve in terms of public transportation. North America carries the fewest rail passengers per year of any world region, accounting for only 3.7 of the 53 billion passengers worldwide. Even worse, the existing public transportation systems within the United States are often isolated to only northern areas like D.C. and New York. And if you examine the nearly 2,800-mile stretch that lies between New York and Los Angeles, you can see the monumental effort it would take to create a national mass transit system and bring the U.S. up to par with the rest of the world. Luckily, Elon Musk, famous for SpaceX, Tesla, and being the real-life Tony Stark, had an idea on how we might make that happen, and it's called the Hypermoop. Even more interesting, he turned it into a competition for universities and private companies. And right here at the University of Florida is a group of talented and hardworking individuals who are answering the call. Their team is called Gatorloop, and they are here to talk to us about Hyperloop and how it might just change the future of public transportation. But before that, Let's tune in with Will and see what's new in the 352. Hello, everybody. My name is William Fair, and I'm here to bring you the latest news of what's new in the 352. This past week has been eventful for UF, Gainesville, and the surrounding area, as UF has just been named number seven in US News Best Public University. In other news, the VA has been announced to expand its facilities in North Florida. In Gainesville specifically, 71,000 square foot primary care facility and a 40,000 square foot mental health facility are planned to be built. The mental health care facility will focus on psychological rehabilitation mental health programs, in addition to combating homelessness in the area for nearly 44,000 veterans living in the area. This has been William Farah, and now you know what's new in the 352. Hey everyone, I'm Kayla, and I'm here with Zach. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Gainesville. So first, we want to welcome our guests from Gatorloop, Derek Deal and Baker Heron. Derek is a president, and Baker is a VP of Computer and Electrical Engineering of Gatorloop. Thanks for joining us, guys. So the Hyperloop project is obviously something really exciting and interesting to be a part of, but it's also something so new that can be hard to understand. Can one of you guys give us a brief description of how this project started, what it is you're competing for, and a little bit about the design of the pod? Great question. So uh, we want to pay respects to the people that started this project in 2015, and it all started by um, Elon Musk and the SpaceX company releasing plans to start the first competition in 2015. Um, then word traveled over here to Florida where a couple students um, actually started three separate teams individually without knowing of each other. Um, then as time went on later in 2015, all the students got together and eventually formed one uh, UF Gatorloop team. And that was kind of inception. So we've been together since 2015. And the purpose of the project at its core is to inspire Hyperloop innovation and inspire students around the world to partake in an open innovation challenge to create um, all the systems and tech needed for Hyperloop technology as a whole. Mm -hmm. And the SpaceX competition is held annually uh, at their headquarters in Hawthorne, California. Can you go more into specifics about what Hyperloop is and what that looks like? <laughs> so as a whole, the Hyperloop idea is that we want to transport people really quickly to another location. Mm -hmm. So more practically, we want to reduce commute times for people between different cities, for instance, like um, in California, between different major cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles, if you have to go from one to the other, it could take, what, five, six hours. But using a technique like Hyperloop, where you take essentially um, an electric car, a vehicle, 
that would be using perhaps magnetic levitation. So it's lifted up to where there's no friction being sent through, think a giant tunnel that has the air sucked out of it so that there's no air resistance. You can get that going really fast. And if you're in a system like this, instead of five to six hours on the roads and traffic, you can get between those cities in like 30 minutes. So that's drastically reducing the time it takes to get to work, to commute, as well as alleviating some of the traffic that would otherwise be occurring. So it's making the roads better. Mm -hmm. And it's also adding another avenue to get to wherever you want to go more specifically targeted towards like heavily populated areas where you need to commute long distance, but as well as just travel across the country. It makes, it really makes the United States as well as other countries that are trying to use it like India and China a lot smaller. Everything gets a lot closer. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so I know this is a long-term project, but when do you guys think the Hyperloop um, will come to cities like Gainesville or not? I mean, not be in Gainesville, that, like that won't be the hub, but be able to connect cities like Gainesville mm -hmm. to Orlando and to Miami. And how do you think the citizens in those small cities, their lives will be affected? Will they, you know, their work life, their social life, just because they can connect to those larger cities? Yeah, the, the biggest thing that's going to immediately affect is going to be the way we think about work um, and travel. Because when the project begins, when it starts spreading through the United States and all the red tape begins to get cut mm -hmm. and plans actually get built and infrastructure is built, um, it's definitely going to be connecting the major cities, so Jacksonville, Orlando, Miami, Tampa, um, within the next decade, 100%, we'll start to see infrastructure being built. Um, and that's just a, that, that's based off of my understanding of how feasibility studies are going on right now. So um, those seem to be going very well in cities like Chicago, which we can talk more about. But um, just by the logical spread of how things kind of build over time is once these hubs are built in these major cities, it's going to naturally spread to more auxiliary cities like Gainesville. And like mm -hmm. we have our very small airport here, much smaller in comparison to Orlando airport, but um, we'll definitely be able to have a Hyperloop station that will probably just based off my guess, connect through Jacksonville and Orlando as one seamless path. Mm -hmm. um, so all the major cities, including places like Gainesville will be connected in some way. Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, it'll also really affect our economy in the United States, particularly tourism, as well as um, just the jobs in general, because people are going to be able to work at places that are typically a lot further away. Right. So like you might actually be able to living in Tampa, easily have a job in Orlando. So it really widens your job search, which will very much affect employment because it, it'll be a lot easier to find jobs because mm -hmm. just that range that you can go is expanded a lot more. And even if you would have had to commute a lot further, it, may, it means people can spend more time with their families, raising their children. And in that way, it'll just have a large impact. And then the thing that I couldn't remember for a second, um, tourism, with this closeness that you now have between cities, people are much more willing and able to go to different places because if it only costs $20 to go from Jacksonville to Miami or mm -hmm. maybe 40, sure. Um, it's still a lot cheaper than driving there. It's a lot mm -hmm. less time if you're spending mm -hmm. 40 minutes driving or, I mean, 40 minutes in the Hyperloop to get there. A lot, you're going to go down there a lot more often mm -hmm. uh, and spend a lot more money in that area than you would have before. So in the future, you can see cities having a lot more tourism. There's a lot more people from different states moving around, a lot of flux throughout the United States, as well as people who are able to work in different locations and also have more time for their families and what's important to them.
Yeah, you no longer have to live where you have to work. There's yeah. much more freedom to, to choose where you want to live um, and then work wherever you have to. Like I had to work in Ocala over the summer and it was not glamorous. But if I were able to live in Orlando um, or Tampa or something and still get to work at the same time every day, that's a whole different story. So, Or honestly, go to uh, school in another city. Like if you yeah. lived in Orlando and wanted to stay at your parents' house, you can just yeah. navigate the high route to Save a Gainesville. bunch of money. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. So you guys kind of touched on that, uh, like public and mass transit within the United States is kind of severely lacking. Mm. New York is like the only city with a rail network where ridership has increased since uh, 2012. And in your guys' opinion and experience, uh, like, why do you think public transportation in the U.S. is so far behind? Is it policy failures or lack of funding or interest in projects like this? Mm -hmm. What do you guys see as the, the challenges? Yeah, I've actually got something for that. I think when you look at cities like China and Japan, where they place much more emphasis on the quality of public transportation, um, that's just not seen here in the U.S. It's completely different. And I think there's a couple factors, though I'm no expert. But what I will say is I think um, we are more of a reactionary country than we are a proactive company so, or country. So um, once we reach a place where cities become overpopulated and we have, you know, the flood of small businesses and large businesses into an area, we're like, wow, we can't really keep up with this infrastructure. So now we become a reactionary um civilization where it's like wow we can't you know funnel all these people from place to place efficiently um so i think we're trying to build those systems and i think hyperloop is um a specific solution to that i don't know if you have another idea yeah oh it's kind of in light of what you're saying here this is there's just not a lot of people who are willing to put the money into something like this especially when we look at our government we are we're trying to implement different transportation systems. Like in California, we were trying to set up some sort of magnetic levitating rail system. But for instance, this this project, the one that we're currently working on, that I believe has been abandoned now, it's just super expensive. And for the most part, a lot of public transportation related things are very expensive. And it's a lot of upfront money when you're not sure how it's going to play out. Because in the past, we've set up like rail systems where it's not used a lot and therefore you don't get the return that you want so it's definitely a risk from the government's point of view why are they going to put this money into this when we have roads we have this system that works fine people get where they need to go it's not dire and since we as americans are often looking at things in a reactor uh re reactory is that a word reactionary reactionary way <laughs> then we just aren't going to do it yeah. but that's why it's awesome that we have companies that are interested in this and are using this to their advantage to set up systems like this and promote this but there has to be that agreement it's necessary between um, federal government as well as these businessmen aren't on entrepreneurs or else nothing will get done because it's hard legally to set up a track that goes across the united states one because there's roads in place there's houses there's private property and there's a lot of wires and just different systems that have to be set up and like there's a lot of practical things like can i put this wire under this road mm -hmm. no you can't uh, you have to get approval from this certain jurisdiction so there's a lot of agreement that has to take place for it to happen yeah do you guys think that there's like a lot of really like policy issues in the way like is there a lot of red yeah. tape mm -hmm. for even implementing these kind of projects yeah and in addition to that um 
how do you like what do you think the solution to that is is it more lobbying from tech corps uh, mm-hmm. or from citizens themselves saying hey we want more research for this technology and we want more funding for it so the red tape is definitely like i mentioned with the infrastructure side like not necessarily in making the vehicle itself but in actually the implementation because like i said like it's hard to build something physically across the united states because that's a, a lot then. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that just is common across a lot of different innovative projects. I will say I have seen some pretty good news updates lately on um, a lot of different feasibility studies finally coming to close. A lot of them started in 2015, 16, and 17, um, and these are multi-billion dollar projects. Actually, one just completed in Miami, I think, and one in Chicago and somewhere else in the Midwest. Um, but these are very expensive to do, and I think some of the numbers that I saw was, hey, you know, when everything checks out at the end of the day, this Hyperloop system would be feasible between Chicago and some other uh, auxiliary city if the vehicle can reach 500 plus miles an hour. That's basically the parameters they gave Hyperloop 1 after that feasibility study. So the red tape is there. Things take a long time to get processed. But the fact that this, this technology is actually gaining ground and grabbing people's attention is a good start though I think we are much further behind than Europe. Um, so for this project to be completed, it would require building a pretty extensive network of underground and kind of air seal tubing. Um, and so who, who's kind of in charge of the logistics of this, of how these, these networks are gonna work and the infrastructure of that? Because the competition's primarily focused on the pods. Who's kind of looking into the other uh, piece of the puzzle there? Good question. So year by year, as anyone who's been following us is gonna see that we've been primarily a design team wanting to build specifically the pod. But my thing is, hey, let's take a step back. Let's figure out why we're doing things wrong. Let's redesign the pod for higher feasibility and design it for manufacturability. And let's do so a year down the road, but also let's consider what's more than Hyperloop. So let's consider feasibility studies here at the university level, what it would look like um, in Gainesville. Let's do some more small scale studies um, let's also look towards educating the public, educating students on campus like, hey, you know, in the next decade or two, there's a very high chance you're going to be actively using this whole new mode of transport, which is just like, I don't know, to me, it's mind blowing because um, I don't know, it's just a whole new system of travel and nothing has been innovated in that way in such a long time. Um, but yeah, there's so many different projects we can take that focus on more than just building the pod. It's investing in, like I said, feasibility studies, which is something that's important for industrial and systems engineers, um, which is why we're actively recruiting, and that's why it's important to us to have them on our team. Yeah. Um, so something else that kind of gets talked about is Elon Musk, um, his boring company, his tunnel infrastructure mm-hmm. company. Um, so, so what have been some of their efforts to kind of make this project a reality? Is that kind of involved with the Hyperloop? Um, yeah, it's a very common question that I get, and I will touch on that real quick. Um, there is a big difference between the Boring Company mm-hmm. and Hyperloop. Um, and I can see very easily how the two would get confused, but the Boring Company is no different than an underground highway. Mm-hmm. That's literally what it is. It's, hey, instead of building you know, a massive five-deck highway, let's do that underground instead. So they bore tunnels and put skates down there for your car, your standard vehicle to ride on. Mm-hmm. The major difference is it's not airtight. It's not all electric. I mean, it's, it's a whole different system. Um, though there could be some parallels drawn between SpaceX and the boring company saying, hey, you know, if you're going to bore a tunnel, 
instead of making that an underground highway, let's just use this specific system and let's put a Hyperloop 2 in it because we need it in this space. Um, but I do want to say that there's a major difference between the two. Hyperloop is focused on all electric, clean energy, um, pods or vehicles passing through airtight vacuum tubes at much, much higher speeds. Yeah. Um, so kind of touching back on the, the design of the tunnels and things like that, how is it going to change based on geographic differences? So in a place like Florida where the, the water level is so high, how, how is that going to change the infrastructure of this project? So most likely we would have a lot more above ground uh, tubing, which isn't much of an issue. It's just, again, the matter of getting that legally. Um, in some ways it's easier than actually digging underground because there's a lot more you have to deal with, even though that can be more direct. Like you don't know what you're tunneling under. When you're above, it's a lot simpler for people to handle and deal with. So that's really the only main consideration. It's just where are you going to put it? And I mean, you can go back and forth between the two. You could have a line going from Miami up to North Carolina, and at some places it'll be above ground, some places it'll be below ground. It's just a matter, as you go across the train, what's best suited for that area. Um, so since you're covering vast distances of land, this is an opportunity to power the system through solar energy or other renewable resources. Is that at all being taken into consideration? So in the ideal world, it would all function via the smart grid. So if you don't know about the smart grid concept, it's essentially an idea of an interconnected system of power. Unlike what we have currently where everything is connected to one central power network, but it's not able to distribute and store things. Like currently, if you want power to your house, that means somewhere the power plant has to produce more energy to compensate for that. But if you're talking about a smart grid, then there's perhaps different battery storage locations where you can take extra energy during the day from solar and store them in a location. And then based off of different computer systems, able to know when to take it back, when to send it to different people's houses so that from your house, you can even sell extra energy that you make and it handles everything um, in a like smart way. Hence, smart grid. It's an intelligent system that uses machine learning. Um, this is something that like, we're moving towards. And if we have this, um, if we have Elon Musk's concept of like giant battery like storage cent uh, centers where you can store a ton of energy to like futurely power cities, then this would be something that we'd be e able to hook up to to power it uh, as we go across the nation, and would make it a lot more effective in the future. But that's in an ideal world. Mm -hmm. For now. That's something that's still up for debate and how that wants to be implemented. I don't know if you have anything on that, Derek. Well, down the road, I mean, it's, it's meant to be kind of like um, like a feedback loop or whatever you want to call it, a system that's self-sustaining, right? So essentially, like, I, like we're saying, the ideal, because it doesn't exist yet, is we're going to build this massive infrastructure. You're going to see these massive tubes down the road as you're driving down the interstate. But um, ideally, we want solar panels all over that thing. If it's going to sit there statically forever, um, we need to be... Uh, as kind of like a, as I think it's called like a zero emission system mm -hmm. or net net zero emission system. So that we're using clean energy to power clean energy because the vehicle itself is all electric, no emissions, clean energy. Um, but we need to harness that energy to power it from elsewhere as well. Mm -hmm. So solar power seems to be like the most feasible first option. Yeah. yeah, just the big thing with that is if your solar panels on your tube, 
then that some of that has to be stored because there's an issue of reliability there because you don't know if you're always going to have the right weather to power things like you need. So you need some sort of system that can manage that where you yeah. can have extra energy stored somewhere where you can get what you need if you, for instance, the sun is covered for like two days or something, you have an mm-hmm. eclipse, you have to be able to get what you need so you can have the same amount all the time because otherwise you have an issue and things yeah. don't work as they need to be. Yeah, and solar might not be great for more northern um, states. They can use like wind turbines or biofuel mm-hmm. and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, that's like why the smart grid concept is so important yeah. to have the storage somewhere that can be easily accessible to where you have that power regardless of what's going on. Um, so, so you talked a lot about the, the huge infrastructure that's involved with this and uh, building tunnels underground and above ground. And has there a been lot. A, yeah, <laughs> it is a lot. And has there kind of been any talk about environmental concerns and possibilities of disrupting certain habitats? And w- what's kind of the plan to address any of those concerns? Yeah, so definitely a lot of potential environmental harm. Um, on the bright side of things, if we're talking about all of the energy storage needs, um, this would mean that we're getting rid of a lot of coal and natural gas that'd be used, especially coal. Coal is the, the one resource that we want to limit as much as possible. Not that there's particularly a shortage of it, but because it just releases so much emissions. It's definitely the worst of, it's the worst offender of all the different non-renewable resources that we use. And by switching to a system like that, that becomes like so much reduced. If we fully implemented a smart grid to where we have this power, we could just get rid of that, which would be fantastic. We could replace that with solar and wind, and we'd have a reliable place to store that, um, which would be awesome. Um, however, if we're talking about the infrastructure side, building a lot of things, yes, that is going to take up space. There are ways to mitigate that, like creating towers for your solar arrays. Another idea for just solar in general is to have something like essentially satellites out in space that are going to bring that energy in. So the idea is that that's closer to the sun and you're able to capture a lot of energy and bring it in. And there's a lot of similar ideas. A lot of that is being tested currently, but otherwise, yes, there is an environmental concern there just in that it's taking up space. There may be um, different forested areas that maybe need to be cut down. But for the most part, um, if it's going underground or being built across the nation, it's gonna be closer to highways. So for the most part, it's gonna be built in an area that's already like not heavily natural resource. There are lots of teams working around this, around the world. What do you want people to know about Gator Loop that sets you guys apart from the others? And if someone at UF is interested in joining, how do they get in t- contact with you guys and on the team? Great question. Gator Loop is different in the sense that we're building things from the ground up. Uh, we're the youngest team on campus but we're building some technology that actually has the potential to be not only feasible, but impact the lives of billions of people across the world. And I think that is incredibly um, motivating to be able to work on that tech at the university level and build a team. Right now we're a team of about 60, actually 60 on the dot after checking the roster yesterday, which is insane. Um, And so I think we're doing very good at building a family and building a network of people who can come and learn skills that they can go and apply to future jobs or also invite people that are passionate about Hyperloop itself and invite them on board and, and prove that tech even further. Um, and for anyone that's interested, we, we're something that's unique to Gatorloop, which is not unique to majority of teams across the world is we're open to people all time, you know, every day, whenever they want to join. Um, 
I know for me, just being the president, I've been here for a year and I joined uh, just because I saw a marketing advertisement and I was like, wow, there's a Hyperloop team on campus. Like, I want to join that. I want to be there. Um, and so there's no application process. We're not uh, exclusive. We want to teach people. We want to inspire people. and We want them to be a part of our community. Um, and that's what's cool about UF and Florida as a whole is we're a very um, community team, um, more of a grassroots movement as opposed to being an elite exclusive team working on technology and just funneling money into us. We want to be someone spearheading that technology in Florida so that when people grow up in the next you know, 30 years and begin to have kids, they're going to you know, have children that grow up using these Hyperloop systems. And where I'm from, like Orlando and places like Miami and Tampa, and we can say like, yeah, you know, students at University of Florida spearheaded that project and made it a reality. So yeah. that's why I'm passionate about it. So, yeah. Great. And do you guys have like social media, like Facebook, Instagram? Where can they find you? Great question. We're on Instagram at UF Gatorloop. Okay. We are on Twitter at uh, Gatorloop. And then if honestly, if you Google our name, our website's popping. Go ahead and look at it. You can find our Facebook on there as well um, and our Twitter and our Instagram. And shoot us an email. Um, we'd love to also have anyone who's listening on an email list that I personally send out every month gives us really nice project updates and shows you uh, what we're doing in the community, what we're doing as a team, um, and what the next step is for us. Awesome. Thank you. So that concludes our talk with Derek and Baker from Gatorloop. We wanted to thank you guys for joining us and sharing the work that you guys are doing. We hope you learned something from this episode of Let's Talk Gainesville. But before you go, let's head over to Will to learn about some upcoming events at the Bob Graham Center. In Bob Graham Center news, we will be having the Women in Leadership Forum Wednesday, October 23rd at 6 p.m.